This is the time of year when we all receive a lot of Christmas cards. Uh, I feel a little bit sorry for the, the male people if they have to deliver all these cards, but not too bad because I enjoy receiving the cards. I especially like the cards that come with pictures. Uh, you look at the pictures and you can see highlights of events from the past year that were significant in the life of that person. You see things like weddings and vacations and births and so forth. I admit, however, that, that there are always at least a few cards that when I look at the card, I have no idea who's in it. I don't recognize the people immediately. Sometimes it's because the picture is of kids and grandkids I've never met, and I'm not feeling too sorry when I understand that, that I didn't recognize them. Other times, it's because I haven't seen a child in the picture for a few years and they've changed. Occasionally, it's the person that I know in the picture that's changed over the past year, but, but sometimes I don't recognize the change. They, sometimes, it's simply people I don't know. My wife has a circle of, of friends from work that I don't know, and it might be someone that I only know of the name I've never met. I don't feel too bad when I don't recognize the person then. But there are other times where it's people I do know. I just was not expecting to get a card from that family. I had one of those experiences this week. I, I looked at the pictures that had come in, and there was this family of four there. And it was a, a couple and then two children that were probably high school or college age. And glanced at them and thought, well, this must be Grace's circle of, of friends. I don't know them and moved on. But then I glanced at the name, and I recognized the name was someone that I did know. They'd been friends of ours when we were newly married, when Katie was first born is how long ago this was. They didn't have any children at that time. But as soon as I recognized their name, I, I looked again and was like, oh yeah, that is them. The, the reason I did not recognize them is I was not expecting a picture. I forgot that every year they faithfully send us a picture, even though we haven't seen them in decades. So I wasn't expecting them. They weren't in my list of, of people that I was mentally anticipating receiving something from. Many of you probably have similar experiences at this time of year as you get the pictures in and the, that stack of cards grow in your home. It's hard to recognize people that we are not anticipating. We, we don't expect to see the picture. The, the question I want to challenge you this morning with is whether Jesus is in that category. Is Jesus one of those people you're not looking for? Or is Jesus someone you're expecting? For the past two weeks, we've been considering the first sections of Matthew's gospel as Matthew introduces us to Jesus. Matthew begins his gospel with the lineage of Jesus, as we saw two weeks ago. And, and he showed that Jesus was the legal line of David and, and, and demonstrated how Jesus had the right to the throne of David. He was rightfully of that line. We looked at that lineage and, show, and saw how through that lineage, God displayed his great work throughout history to bring this long-awaited Messiah, the, the Savior of Israel, into being. He brought him forth. Last week, we looked at Joseph's discovery that his fiancée, Mary, was pregnant. The young man was encountered quite a surprise when he found his, his fiancée pregnant, assuming she had been unfaithful to him. And, and God sent the angel that, that approached Joseph in a dream and, and told him that, no, your fiancée was not unfaithful. What she has is a baby that's been given to her by the Holy Spirit. 
the baby that is now fully God and fully man, a baby who could save people from their sins. He could do that because he was not sinful himself. We, we learned last week that the virginal conception of Jesus was necessary to, to allow him to give his life for the sins of others. This morning we're going to look at Matthew's third section as he's introducing us to Jesus. Likely, many of you have heard this section as the well-known story of the Magi as they come looking for baby Jesus. Often they're given the name wise men, and frequently they're pictured in our children's programs or in nativity scenes. They're pictured as three foreign kings coming to the manger alongside the shepherds. Of course, the reality is there were certainly more than three, and they arrived probably a year or two after Jesus was born. They, they were not there with the shepherds by the manger. They also were not kings. But, but correcting these misperceptions, that's not our main concern this, this morning. Our concern is to celebrate the, the birth of Jesus. And our concern as we do that is that I want to ensure that we recognize Jesus as our true king. We must. We must recognize Jesus as our true king. Let's read what Matthew's recorded here of this visit, this arrival of the Magi. It's found in the first 12 verses of Matthew chapter 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler, who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me, so that I too may come and worship him. After hearing the king, they went their way. And the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. I anticipate this morning that this overall account is familiar to most of you. Most likely you've heard this story many times. What I want us to do this morning is not so much focus on the story overall, but rather focus in on three perspectives that we find within this story. Three specific responses that are identified in the events that occurred. Perspectives as to how Jesus was recognized. The first perspective I'd like us to consider is that of Herod. Herod, as we're told in verse 1, was the king. And to Herod, Christ was an opponent. He was an opponent. I've mentioned he's the king. That's what scripture tells us. He was the king of Judea at this time when Christ was born. He was not an absolute king because he ruled under the authority of Rome. He was under the emperor, but... 
he was a king of that region, and he was a successful king. By this point in time, he had ruled around 35 years, and significantly, he had served two consecutive Roman emperors, two emperors who did not like each other at all. It was kind of like when we replace a, a, a Republican with Democrat or vice versa. They, they clear out all the old administration, bring in their own. Well, Herod survived that kind of a transition. That, that indicates how successful he was. It attests to his abilities. He, he was known for great organizational skills. He had military accomplishments. He had constructed the, the temple in Jerusalem, a magnificent temple that, that he had led the construction of. Herod was also known for his cruelty. And at this late stage in his reign, he became known for his paranoia. By, by the time Jesus was born, Herod had already killed his favorite wife. Think about what it means to be a favorite wife when he kills you, along with two of his sons, because he was convinced they were plotting for his throne. He had also killed a large number of Jewish leaders because he had similar fears. They were somehow plotting for his throne. Now along come these magi from the east, approaching him in Jerusalem. We, we don't know where they're from. Tradition suggests maybe Persia or Babylon because it's from the east. They approached Herod and they asked, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Notice, they did not say, Where is he who has been born who will become king of the Jews? They want to see someone who was king from the moment he was born. That's the question they're posing to this, this paranoid man. The way the question's phrased, the child's kingly status is already in place. So, of course, they come to the palace. That's where you'd expect a, a baby who's born king would, would reside. They come to the palace and they ask to see him. Well, to Herod, that question is terrifying. He's paranoid that people are plotting to take away his throne. And now these strangers come from a far land saying, where's the one who's king? Any child that foreigners would consider already to be the rightful king clearly represents a threat to to Herod. So we read of Herod's attempt to to find this child himself by by pretending to share their their desire, their interest in the baby, their desire to, to find the baby and worship him. I'm sure you all know that his real goal is to simply find the baby and kill the, the child. But, but did you notice one interesting thing when Herod inquires of the religious leaders where the Magi should look for the child? The Magi asks, where is the one born king of the Jews? Herod asks the, the, the chief priests and the scribes where the Messiah, the Christ, would be born. Herod knew enough Old Testament prophecy to understand that the one that the Magi were were seeking had to be the one that God had promised to send, the the promised Messiah, the Christ. God had promised that he would send a Savior for his people. Rather than see Christ as Savior, Herod sees Christ as opponent. As I look out at all of you this morning, I realize that this is a perspective of Jesus that remains one option that that you may have. You may see Jesus as an opponent. No, you're you're not a king. I I am not looking out at any kings this morning. You're you're not trying to hold on to your your royal throne. Most likely you're all good American citizens and, and you're thankful for our own democratic form of government. But you may still perceive Christ as an opponent in your life. 
The, the way that you look at your life this morning, you oversee it completely. You are the one who calls the shots. You determine what's right and what's wrong. You decide what you will make happen, what you will not. You will decide what makes you happy and what will not. Granted, you, you may be unhappy, but that's because of what other people do that interfere with your life, not because you've decided wrong. That's the way you look at life. You remain king or queen of your life. Christ is an opponent in the sense that you understand if you accept him as the Bible presents him to you, as the Savior, that means yielding authority to him. He will become Lord of your life. He will take over the top position, determining what is right and what is wrong. He will be the one that you will serve because serving him is what will make you happy. You know this, and for this reason, you perceive him as nothing more than a threat. An opponent. An opponent that you resist with all of your energy. Just like Herod. To Herod, Christ was an opponent. That's perspective number one that we find in these verses. Are you like Herod this morning? Is Christ an opponent for the authority in your life? The second perspective we can find in the, the, the brief reference we find to the people in Jerusalem there in verse 3. We, we see a, pers a second perspective regarding Christ. To the people, Christ was a disruption. A disruption. Herod was troubled when he heard the Magi were looking for the, the child that was born king. Surprisingly, Matthew records there in verse 3 that all Jerusalem was troubled along with Herod. In other words, the, the people from the city, they, they heard that Herod now was, was troubled and they became troubled as well. Why? What's the connection that Matthew wants us to make between Herod and the people? What does he want us to understand? Well, remember, Herod is cruel at this point in his reign. That The people likely understand that, that this question the Magi have brought forth, this is going to result in more cruelty from Herod. Herod has killed numerous people already in Jerusalem. He's killed many of the leaders because he thinks they are somehow threatening his throne. And the people of Jerusalem, they've witnessed this. They've witnessed these leaders being put to death. Some of these leaders would represent friends and family to many of the people in Jerusalem. Now they fear. They fear a new disruption will come to their city because their king is troubled. One thing that we do not see evidence of in Matthew is, what the, the, is any sign that the people of the city here are anticipating the arrival of the Messiah. We, we don't see anything like that. We're, we're not told of any interest that, that rose among the people. When they see this caravan of foreigners arrive in their city asking, where's the one born of king? We don't see an uprising of, what? We missed something. Where can we find him. Surely they knew the Old Testament prophesied that, that God would send Christ to their nation. The, the chief priests and scribes are clearly able to even identify where the child is to be born. They, this Old Testament prophecy is, is understood, is known. They know this future is waiting to come. But they're not looking for it in their lifetime. The arrival of the Messiah, that's not part of their daily thoughts. So their daily thoughts are just to go about their business, 
to do what they have to do to, to maintain their, their lives. They're simply concerned that their lives will remain uninterrupted by the questions posed to the king. Now they're troubled because their lives are disrupted. I fear that some of you may look at Christ in a similar way to the citizens of Jerusalem. You're not antagonistic toward Christ, yet neither are you receptive toward him. For the most part, Jesus is just simply not part of your daily thinking. You're busy with life, you're working your job, you're caring for your, your family, you're taking care of all of your daily needs, and, and once in a while Christ intrudes to your life, you know, like when Christmas comes around or Easter comes around and you, you have to go to church out of tradition that your family's developed. But for the rest of the year, Christ is a non-entity. You, you live your life in a comfortable manner, a manner in which Jesus really doesn't factor in. Sure, you know of him, you, you, you may even know the main points of the gospel message of Jesus. If you've grown up in church or if you've attended several Christmas services along the way, you, you know these details. Still, if you were to start thinking of Jesus any more than you do now, he would become a disruption in your life. It is crazy talk to think of attending church more often than you do. It's inconceivable that you would structure your time and your energy around serving him. Be honest with yourself. Is your perception of Jesus any different than the people in Jerusalem? Are you any different from the people in Jerusalem? Christ is a potential disruption to you. To the people, Christ was a disruption. That's the second perspective that we see in our verses. Are you like the people of Jerusalem? Does Christ threaten to disrupt your life from, from living it in the comfortable manner that, that you are now? Of course, the, the main players in the verse are the Magi. They're, they're the main ones that we see. And, and the Magi give us the third perspective. To the Magi, Christ was worthy of worship. As I mentioned earlier, we have no idea exactly where the Magi are from other than they come from the east. The, the word that Matthew uses for them, it, it really covers a wide variety of, of men in that day. These are men who are interested in things like dreams and astrology and magic and so forth. Anything that might help predict the future in some way. That's what this word alludes to. Clearly these particular Magi are or at least somewhat interested in astrology because something happened in the night sky that initiated their interest, what they call the star. While Matthew does not give us any specific details about the Magi, he does contrast their eagerness. Their eagerness to worship Jesus with the apathy of the Jewish people and the hostility of Herod. These men would have limited knowledge of, of God's promise of Messiah. They must have some knowledge because they, they, they had enough understanding to come looking. The, the Jews, by this point in history, have been scattered through the east because of the exile of Babylon that was a few centuries earlier now. So the, the scripture had been carried out there and it was around. So the Magi's knowledge was probably tied to that in some sense, but their knowledge would be vastly inferior to that of Jewish people especially inferior to the religious experts there in Jerusalem, the, the Jews that had the Old Testament revelation from God for centuries to inform them. 
And yet here we have the Magi. They're the ones who come to Jerusalem. They, they make this extensive trip. They have come seeking a baby that they believe to have been born based on what they discovered in the night sky. They're putting out great effort. They're, they're putting forth great expense. From the, the gifts they bring, clearly they are prepared to honor him and his family when they locate him. They're the ones who recognize he's worthy of worship. Now the term that, that Matthew uses for worship, it, it's a term that simply means to, to, to pay homage or to, to do honor toward someone, to, to recognize this person as a superior. Still, Matthew's arranging his gospel here. Just before this, we have the, 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 the record of the virgin conception. So Matthew clearly expects us, as his readers, when we understand this is God come in the flesh, we'll understand that worship means more than just do homage. Worship means, means worship the one who is God in the flesh. This is the one whom worship is owed, not just honor. And I'm sure all of us have some curiosity about what if the star, what the supernatural object is that, that led these magi to, to worship, and then it suddenly shows up again in this event and leads them to, to Bethlehem. What is it? How did it do that? We'd like to know, but, but we don't. God doesn't reveal that to us. What he does reveal is that when this object reappears, the, the magi, after their visit to Herod, and when they see it again, they're elated. Their, their joy coupled with their reaction when they at last find Jesus and Mary in Bethlehem, it shows how significant they, they saw this baby. They understood he is worthy of worship. They had expended months of their lives to find him. The Magi see both Jesus and Mary, but their worship is directed to Jesus alone. Matthew records that, that they fell to the ground before him. They, they worshipped him. They presented gifts to him. Gold, frankincense, myrrh, expensive items that they carried in their treasure boxes all the way along their trip just so they could, could demonstrate the great value that they placed in seeing this baby by giving him these gifts. In Psalm 72, verses 10 and 11, as well as Isaiah chapter 60, verse 6, the Old Testament contains messianic prophecies that, that tell us that rulers will bow down before the Messiah and that he will receive gold and frankincense. Well, the Magi begin to fulfill these prophecies. More significantly, though, the Magi begin to fulfill prophecies that are strewn throughout the Old Testament, beginning with Abraham, that, that the Messiah, the one that God will bring forth, will draw Gentiles to God as well as Jews. Matthew here is demonstrating that Jesus begins fulfilling this prediction the moment the Magi bow down before him and worship him. Gentiles are coming. Remember the initial question that, that the Magi posed to Herod. They, they announced their intention to find this baby so that they could worship him. They, they said, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? They assigned that title to him, king of the Jews. They assigned that title to Jesus, even though they have never seen him yet. They have not found him at that point. He is the king of the Jews. Well, that title appears one other time in Matthew's gospel. There's one other place where Jesus has the title King of the Jews. It's found in chapter 27, verse 37. 
You, you can turn there if you wish. I'm going to read from verse 35 of Matthew 27 so that we can see the second time the title King of the Jews appears. Matthew writes, And when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. And sitting down, they began to keep watch over him. And there above his head, they put up the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus. What comes next? The King of the Jews. Around three decades later, this title that the, the Magi assigns to Jesus, it, it hangs above his head as he hangs on the cross. Jesus was the king of the Jews the moment he was born. He was worthy of worship as, as the young child, as the Magi encounters him. Yet, yet the full demonstration of his magnificent worthiness awaits the second occurrence of the title. The full demonstration of his worthiness awaits the time when Jesus gives his life to save people from their sins. Jesus became the Savior of both Jews and Gentiles by, by giving his life to pay this penalty for others' sins. We all deserve an eternal death because we've sinned against God. As I mentioned earlier, our natural desire for independence, the reason we might perceive Jesus as a threat to our authority, that's just demonstration of our sinfulness. God is holy and cannot tolerate sin in his presence. But, but God is also just. That means he cannot overlook sin. Instead, your sin, my sin, any sin, it, it must be fully punished. And there are only two ways that, that this punishment can occur. The Bible says there's only two options for punishing sin against holy God. One, we can spend all eternity paying for our sin, suffering in hell. Or two, we can accept that Jesus died as our substitute and asked God to take his death in our place. Jesus is the only sinless substitute available. And the only substitute God can accept is a sinless one. Jesus was born sinless. That was the virginal conception last week. Jesus lived sinless. That's the rest of Matthew. And Jesus died. Voluntarily, I might add, he died sinless. We find at the end there, Matthew, in, in chapter 27, his death can serve as our substitute. What, what we have to do is ask God to accept Jesus in our place. Accept his death as our payment. That's what it means to accept Jesus as Savior. The, the moment that we do that, we're saved. Yet, yet the moment that we believe that Jesus died in our place, we will find that, that we are as determined as the Magi to worship him. We want to worship the one who died for us. We will seek every opportunity to worship him because we know he is worthy of worship. This morning, I'm looking at a lot of Gentiles. To my knowledge, I'm not looking at any Jews. We, we can rejoice that the king of the Jews draws Gentiles to himself as well as Jews. We can rejoice that the king of the Jews was born worthy of worship. We can rejoice that the king of the Jews died worthy of worship. We can rejoice that the king of the Jews rose from the dead, worthy of worship. Are you worshiping the one who is worthy? Are you worshiping Jesus, the king of the Jews? 
Are you responding like the Magi? The third perspective in our verses. To the Magi, Jesus Christ was worthy of worship. Worship begins by accepting Jesus as our Savior. Accepting that he died in my place and your place for our sins. We, it must be done personally. If you need to talk to me to understand that more fully, please do so today. We must recognize Jesus as our true king. Much like the, the cards that we receive at Christmas, we, we may not recognize what we have because we're not looking for it. We're not looking at it with the right perspective. With a Christmas card, we can generally resolve the, the issue just by looking at the name on the card. When it comes to Jesus, we can res resolve our perspective by looking at him as our true king. Th this morning, we've seen these three perspectives here in Matthew's record of the Magi's visit. To Herod, Christ was an opponent. To the people, Christ was a disruption. To the Magi, Christ was worthy of worship. Only that final perspective aligns with the salvation from our sins that we all need. Which perspective represents your perspective today? How are you looking at Christ? We must recognize Jesus as our true king. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that we have been able to gather this Christmas day and to celebrate the birth of our Savior. As we do so, may we recognize that Jesus is our true king. May we have the right perspective and rejoice that he came to die for our sins. Father, if there is someone here today that sees Jesus either as an opponent or a disruption, I pray today that you would enlighten them, draw that person to yourself so that they will see for the first time that Jesus truly is the one worthy of worship, the one who can save from their sins. May they bow before him today, accepting his offer of salvation. We pray this in his glorious name. Amen.